0: Welcome to the intersection of theater and even more theater. You have achieved stage grok. Stage Grok, The Roaming Theater Podcast, coming to you from the Geographic Center of the American Theater. I'm your host, Scott Miller. Today, I talk with Broadway composer and lyricist Jason Robert Brown from his home in New York. Okay, well, thanks so much for talking to me today. Uh, the, the main thing I want to talk about is just kind of your writing process and all that. But what I'm really fascinated by is you write a lot of songs that aren't meant for the stage, that aren't meant for a musical. And so the first thing I want to talk about is
1: Is that different? How is that different? Um, It is different. It's a lot different. Um, I mean, a song is a song is a song is a song. And I think the way an audience knows that a song is a song is that it has a certain structural integrity that announces, yes, this thing would call itself a song, as opposed to this is maybe a recitative. This is maybe a set of ideas that is leading up to something. This is a transition. This is a, you know, I have plenty of those in the shows too, but I think a song meaning a thing where there is sufficient repetition of an idea that an audience can grok the structural elements of it. Um, I think once we can agree on a kind of definition for what a song is, uh, I think writing a theatrical song and writing a non-theatrical song are are, uh, two different experiences. Um, They have a bunch of things in common, uh, but the main difference really is about uh, the way that a character has to build through a song versus the way that a non-theatrical song is allowed to just sort of live in a single emotional state. A... uh, I, I I call them pop songs, I guess, though I I don't know how pop any of it is. But, you know, a pop song, which is to say a non-theatrical song that I would write, right. can really be about an idea as opposed to about the growth of a character. But is, I find is, that in is, a musical... Is,
0: yep. I was going to say, is, is one of the other easier or more satisfying?
1: Um... Uh, So I would say that the solo songs are maybe a little easier uh, just in that they have less work that they have to do. A theater song always has to do its part within the bigger structure as well as doing its part on its own. And I think the the particular joy of writing the solo numbers is that they kind of live in their own world. And so I don't have to... uh, fit them into any other context. Right. And and it seems like sometimes those songs are direct responses
0: to something going on in the world or something like life. Is that right?
1: Oh, very much so. I mean, uh, even the songs that are not obviously that are often rat. right, Uh right. Because <laughs> to be honest, just at my age now, most of what I write is parts of musicals because that's what gets the bills paid. So mm. for me to sit down and write something that's not one of the shows, I really have to be sort of passionately moved by an idea to do it. So all of the songs on the new album, on how we react and how we recover, really came out of just a a, a real need to to write that down because something had happened in my life that forced me to the piano.
0: Is is there a difference for you
1: in performing those songs? Uh, There is. I mean, I've been... You know, I've been performing for all of these years, and I primarily don't want to take on songs as a performer that require me to to really act with a capital A, you know, (laughs) things that take me that far outside of myself, because I honestly... I don't know that I have the tools, not just as to whether I'm a good actor or not, which the the jury is still out, but because I'm stuck at the piano playing them, even the tool of my body is not available to me. Right. I don't have a tool of a costume or a prop or anything like yeah. that. I have to just use my voice to tell all those stories. So unless I'm going to do a whole lot of setup, which I often do, um, I don't tend to do a lot of character stuff in uh, in my solo shows. So for that reason, yes, performing those is different. But also, because nothing I say ever has a, a single answer, um, <laughs> it's also true that the solo songs are primarily about a musical idea, whereas the theatrical songs tend to be about a character idea. They tend to be about, uh, oh, right again, the musical idea plus. So that when I do the solo songs, I can just live in the music more easily. Uh, I think that is the the key difference between Songs for a New World and my later stuff is that the Songs for a New World songs are much more than the later shows were ever allowed to be. They are about musical ideas sometimes, something like She Cries. I can live in that as a musical idea, uh, you know, in a way that I can't with something from The Bridge of the Madison County or Honeymoon in Vegas.
0: Right. That's interesting.
1: Uh, Does
0: the the beginning of the process of writing – does that, and not not in terms of content and inspiration, all that kind of stuff, but the actual sitting down writing music, is that different between the solo songs and the theater songs?
1: It can be. Uh, uh, and again, it can be because of there are so many restrictions on the theater songs. Right. They, they're forced to live in a very small box. And there are a lot of restrictions that I'm probably not as conscious of on the solo songs, and the restriction is primarily that I'm writing it for myself as a performer, uh, right. myself as a as a pianist, myself as a singer. And I, you know, I'm uh, to an extent, I, the same way that anybody is, I'm limited in terms of what I can do. So, you know, when I write the solo stuff, I tend to write for the, you know, for the bag that I like to live in. So I think the solo songs tend to be more groove oriented than the show stuff. And they tend to be, uh, you know, more piano featured or more instrumental featured at least. Uh, so, uh, you know, it probably, when I sit down to write the solo songs, I'm more interested in, uh, sort of letting something spread out and groove a little more. And that can be a lot more fun. Whereas with the theater songs, especially cause again, I'm always on deadline with the theater songs, So I'm really trying to figure <laughs> out how to, you know, I I've got a lot of math to do on any given theater song. And I'm always just trying to figure out how to get the math done and still make something beautiful. Yeah. Well, okay, so let's talk about the process of of writing a show.
0: Um, Do do you ever initiate the idea for a show, like I want to write about so-and-so, or do people generally bring you something?
1: Well, the last five years and songs for a New World were both definitely my idea, and so was 13, actually, for that matter. Oh, right. Um, I would say that... I mean, obviously, not uh, Bridges of Madison County. Uh, Honeymoon in Vegas. I was given a list of movies and told to pick one that I wanted <laughs> to do, and that's the one I picked. So, I, that's sort of a hybrid. Um, what a greatest though! <laughs> oh, it was
0: uh,
1: so a blast, and you know, and the show itself was a blast. But yeah, um, yeah. I think, uh, in terms of like, I have a dream about an idea. There's a, th- a show that I really want to write. I tend not to, uh, first of all, I feel like on some level, I may have said all of the things that I wanted to say by the time I was done with the last five years, which isn't to say that I don't still want to keep saying them, but I I think as a writer, all writers are sort of faced with the the problem of the diminishing returns of the, you know, the 12 good ideas that we got when we were born. (laughs) And so uh, I I don't sit around and think, oh, that would make a great musical, or oh, I really want to write a show based on that. It does happen, and uh, I'm exploring one of those now with a, a friend of mine and I are, are working on a, a, a piece. But most of the impetuses that I have are musical, which is to say, I want to live in that musical world. I want to I want to hear what that show sounds like more than I'm yeah. dying to tell that story. I I would rather let other people tell me what story they're dying to tell, and then I can respond musically. So that if there's a milieu that shows up, and I immediately say, ooh, I love that music, or ooh, I've never tried to write anything like that. You know, one of the shows I'm writing now is um, Farewell, My Concubine, which is based on the 1992 uh, Chinese movie. And it's a whole show set in the world of the Peking opera, which is on a musical level so completely uh, divergent from anything else that Western music is. And I really thought, how do I find my voice within that music and how do I still respect that music? How do I still give it the, the respect that it needs? And so, you know, without it becoming overly academic, it's been a real joy for me to just figure out how to make music in a milieu that's totally foreign to me as opposed to honeymoon in Vegas, which is really, that's sort of what my brain sounds like on a daily basis. <laughs> okay. Well, so, so, uh, you take on a, a project,
0: uh, what's the first step? How much do you talk to book writer or director or whoever before you set to work?
1: Um, I, I mean, it, it it depends on a bunch of things, but by and large, I have to know what the story is and who the characters are before I can write a note. So, you know, I always tell the book writers they're going to have a bunch of heavy lifting before I really even start <laughs> doing anything. But I do the heavy lifting with them. I mean, I'm sitting in a room with them trying to figure out what the story is and how how the storytelling has a musical shape to it. And I, I think that's one of the things that's always important to me in the writing of a musical is that it the shape of it – have the same sort of musical peaks uh, and rhythms that a symphony would. I mean, you're talking about what is essentially going to feel to an audience like an hour-and-a-half or two-and-a-half-hour-long piece of music. So how do you give it the rhythm over the course of that two-and-a-half hours? What is it that the story needs to do to make sure that you're always – peaking and valuing and building and, you know, that you've got the big sections and the little sections and and there's, you know, the large ensembles and then there's the small moments and how are you alternating that and how are you building all of that? So I'm going to sit and do that heavy lifting with the, with the book writer and sometimes with the director uh, before I really even write a note, which means that by the time I do start writing, I've had plenty of time to think about what the sound of the show is. I know yeah. very much what I want the show to sound like. I mean, not know actual pitches, but I know right, right, right. texturally. Uh, and again, I think it's very important to me that all of my shows have a very specific sound world. And I think so far uh, I've been lucky enough that they do.
0: So so, this, um, so it gives the score uh, a, a unity, like it all sounds like itself. Is that what you mean?
1: It does, but even more to the point, it gives the score a character. The score is, oh, okay, yeah, uh, its own. Uh, you know, the score is its own representation of who these people are. That right. is the world they live in, and so for a show like Parade, there is a very specific nature to not just the instrumental forces, though those are very specific. Even the, even though there are two different uh, orchestrations, you can do the the large version and then the smaller one, but uh, there's also something in the tonality of the writing, and there's something in the the stylistic uh, journeys that the writing takes, what box I put that in, that makes Parade very specifically itself. Um, and I think Parade and Bridges are both similar in that they are pieces that within them describe two very different worlds that crash into each other. Yeah, And I think with Parade, you have the Leo Frank and Lucille Frank world and what that tonality is versus the tonality of, uh, you know, the greater Atlanta uh, world and the South post-Civil War thing that, that goes on through the rest of the piece. And I think the the clash between those two uh, is really sort of at the heart of what keeps the motor of the score running. And likewise with Bridges that Francesca lives in one world musically, and Robert lives in another world musically, and then Francesca's family lives in yet a third place. And having those three worlds that can comment on each other and interact with each other and also separate from each other was key to me in understanding both how the score would work, but also how to tell the story. You want to be giving enough voice to each of those three worlds that you know something about the storytelling even if you don't speak the language, even if you sat there and couldn't see the show and didn't speak English. You could hear the score and understand how all of these things are crashing into each other and interacting with each other, and I think you'd still really feel the story uh, just through the musical storytelling.
0: Do do you generally have a, a finished or sort of finished script when you're working on songs?
1: No. I mean, we no. usually have an outline. I would say that we've okay. usually got, you know, a, a, a five to ten page version of what we hope the show will be. And, and have you identified got, the the song points? We think we have.
0: Okay. <laughs> uh, you
1: know, we I mean, we're probably wrong as often as not. But what happens thereafter is I let the book writer get one or two scenes ahead of me. Uh, so that the book writer will then write a draft of the first scene based on the way we've delineated the outline, and then send that to me. I'll send back some notes, or I might just say, all right, let me just play with this for a while. Got, you move on to the next thing. And then I'll, once I get my song and I send it to the book writer, the book writer takes a look at that and figures out how to integrate that into any of the things that are now in the next scene that's being written in the scene after that. And we just sort of play tag from there on out. I try not to let the book writer get too far ahead of me because I feel like it's just, it's a little counterproductive because by the time I catch up, there's a lot that I'm going to want to change inevitably. And, uh, you know, I may make a decision in the way that I write scene eight that's going to totally change what you thought scene 11 was supposed to be. So better that you not get to scene 11 yet. But I, I I think other writers are less, Uh, precious than I am. It's not that I'm so (laughs) precious about the writing. I just don't want to have to. I I just don't like writing. It's exhausting, and it's hard. So Mm -hmm. for me, I would rather not have to keep going to the well, but I think a lot of other writers are like, yeah, it's just words. I'll just write more (laughs) of (laughs) them. And do you scavenge the script a fair amount? Uh, Again, it depends. Depends Uh, Sometimes I scavenge it. Sometimes I totally take it in a whole different direction, and you know, I'll send it to you know, I, I'll send things to Marsha or I'll send things to Cam Lynn, who's writing Pharaoh uh, and My Concubine with me, and they'll be like, oh, I didn't know that's what this scene was going to be, but okay, I guess we'll go Wait. with it that way. Yeah, um, no, or they may cool, say, you though. know what, I see why you wanted to do that, but I I don't think these characters can actually sustain this idea that you just put them into. And I'll be like, oh, okay, I mean, I guess you're right. You know, but um, <laughs> there, there is a lot of give and, uh, give and take in terms of, the the storytelling and the, the um, how the characters are going to get from one end of the show to the other. You know, if you're lucky, you know what the end of the show is when you start.
0: Uh, <laughs> and
1: so um, everything is really just about filling in the space between the beginning and the end.
0: Do you cut many songs?
1: I try not to. I mean, with Bridges, I think I cut three songs over the whole course of the writing. That was by yeah. far the easiest show I've ever written. Um, and with honeymoon in Vegas, I probably cut 35. Um, Oh wow. Just because you know, the nature of writing a comedy is that either an idea for a song works or it doesn't. And you can't just keep tweaking an idea. Either the idea was good or it cause a funny idea. All you have to do is really write the funny idea. You could write the first three lines of it and the song is fine. You can just keep going from there. Everybody's Okay. But if the idea for the song isn't funny, you can sit there and tweak it for the rest of your life, and it's never going to get there.
0: And, and, and so, if it... Go ahead.
1: It, no, so that was that was the tricky thing about Honeymoon in Vegas. Funny songs are really, they're seven, 17 times more difficult than dramatic songs. And finding out the funny idea, sometimes you have to go through a lot of other ideas to get to it. You have ideas that you think are funny, and then you just can't execute <laughs> them. And then, you, or you do execute them, and it turns out, no, that's not going to work. So I, there there was a lot of rewriting on the, on that. Um you know, very little replacing on the last 5 years. I think two songs maybe, but 13 again was a comedy and I think I probably swapped out, you know, 25 30 songs in there. <laughs> <laughs> and and is it is it just mysterious
0: why one song doesn't work and another one does or can you look at it and go, oh, "Okay, I see what happened."
1: You know, a song has to do so many jobs that yeah. you can't that a song doesn't work for any one particular reason because it may just be... I mean, most often what happens is I can feel a song isn't very good. And, uh, and the reason that, that the feel song like? isn't very good... What does it feel like? It just feels like you're... It feels like work. Singing the song feels <laughs> like work and it feels like you never land. You know, this feeling like yeah. you just sort of... You took a leap in the air and the most satisfying version is like, you land exactly in the spot where you wanted to, and everybody cheers. Right. And right. what happens when you write the bad song is you take the leap in the air, and then just sort of at a certain point you just fell down someplace, and everyone looks around and they're like, oh, did we get to the end? I guess we did. Um, and so that's a that's an enormously dispiriting feeling. But sometimes you just have to do it. And sometimes what I feel like while I'm sitting in my studio and writing the song, oh, this isn't going to work. And then I play it for everybody, and they're like, oh, that's fantastic. So I, I, you know, I'll, I'll open it up to the collaborators because the math of it sometimes is more important than the song. Uh, but I, I find that when the idea is exactly right, the song just goes. The song just writes itself, and the song always tends to be great. Uh, but you need to have a great idea for a great song. And the way that musicals are constructed – they don't always allow for a great idea at every moment. You know, not every moment in a show is worthy of a great song, but it needs a song. You do need to write something. Something (laughs) has to happen here. And if you're not going to write a great song, then how do you write a song that still does all the jobs that it needs to do? How do you do the math of moving the character forward, moving the plot forward, and still being interesting, still being beautiful, still being funny, whatever it has to do? And I think that's when the real writing skill comes in you know i think you can be a fluky writer of great songs all the time but getting through an entire score of a theater piece you have to know what songs have to sort of act like the life rafts for the rest of the score (laughs) yeah right yeah
0: (laughs) Do, do, do you find yourself in a place where you've written a song that you love 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 and it just does not belong in this show it just doesn't work
1: oh sure yeah, Yeah. I mean, and you know, and I hate it, but I'm the first one to notice it. You know, I, I there was a song in Bridges that I actually thought to stay in uh, through like two weeks of previews. And, and they were all saying that, you know, the song doesn't work, the song doesn't work. And I was like, it doesn't work because it's not being staged right, or it doesn't work because it's not set up well in the book and all of that. Both of which were probably true, but also at a certain point... The reason that the book didn't set it up right, and the reason the staging didn't work, is because the song didn't need to be in the show, and I took the song out, and all of a sudden the second act started flowing much better, and nobody missed it, and you know, except the actress who had sung it, mm-hmm. and uh, so you know, there there are things like that that happen, but um, but more often than not, what happens is that we'll go through a reading. And we'll all be giving notes afterwards, and people will be talking about some moment that happened. And that, you know, oh, this thing at the end of the first act, it's not landing the way it's supposed to. And I'm the one who'll say, it's because the song, the, the no, song number four isn't right, and I got to take it out. And everyone will be like, no, we like number, you know, that song is great. You can't take it right. out. And I'll be like, just, you have to trust me now. I'm very old, yeah. and I've been doing this for a while. <laughs> I'm going to replace it with an equally great song. It will still work, but it's not going to fuck us up later, which this song right. is doing now. Right, right.
0: Okay, so I want to talk about a really specific song, this song Hope. Um and I want to talk about kind of how it happened and and what what it was for you. If that makes <laughs> sense. Well hope
1: the story of Hope was that um I went to bed on election night, you know, uh, and couldn't sleep. Uh, like almost everybody else. I remember I was on Facebook at like three in the morning and I just wrote, guys, I feel like shit and I can't sleep. How does everybody else feel? And like a thousand people wrote me back and they yeah. all were like, yeah, me too. Can, you know, Oh yeah, I'm in England. I can't sleep. I, I'm in Australia. I can, you know, that it was just this moment of like major national grief. Um, and so the next morning uh, I woke up and I had to take my, uh, my daughter to an interview at a, a girls' school uh, that she wanted to go to, and um, so I was, you know, getting ready for that, and it was like, I mean, the whole house was like awake. It was terrible. Um, and as I was getting her ready for her interview and getting ready to walk out the door, I realized that I had said yes months before to being a guest on Kristen Chenoweth's show that night uh, at the L'Anne She was doing oh, a wow. two-week thing on Broadway, and every night there was a special guest, and she had asked me to be her special guest. And she said, and you'll sing something of yours. And while I was getting my daughter ready, I thought, I don't know what I'm supposed to sing, because anything that I could sing sounds either completely inappropriate to the moment, yeah. or you know, just sort of like insanely hostile. So I think uh, not quite what I was supposed to do in that context. So I, uh, I thought, well, this is, uh, this is really complicated. I'm thinking through my whole repertoire and what can I sing and how can I do it, and nothing's coming. And so I ran into my shower, and while I was in the shower, I thought, what I want to sing is that I would like to be able to say something hopeful right now. I don't know what it would be, but that is what I would like to do. And standing in the shower, I thought, I've come to sing a song about hope. I'm not inspired much right now, but even so. Uh. And I got those two lines, and I thought, it is highly unlikely that I am going to be able to write an entire song by the time this show starts tonight. (laughs) But maybe I will, because it's the only option I have. And so I took my daughter to the interview, and my wife was there, and, uh, and while I was in the cab... I actually wrote most of the lyrics, Uh, and I I hadn't sat down at the piano, but I kind of knew already what it was supposed to sound like. And I got to the school, and it was a girls' school in New York City, and so it was, as you can imagine, a a place that was deathly upset. You know, they were really, uh, all of these girls who thought they were going to be, you know, celebrating the first female president were instead just sort of bewildered. And I, it's, I felt even more strongly in that moment that I have to say something to my daughters that tells them that it isn't for nothing. Yeah. Um, and so I, uh, we got home from the interview and we dropped our daughter off at her her regular school. And uh, we came home and Georgia said, oh, Hillary's giving her a concession speech at noon. And I said, okay, well, I'll be down uh, in a couple of minutes. And I just sat down at the piano, and I turned on the tape recorder, and I did what I thought was just going to be kind of like a draft of me running through it. And instead, I got to the end of it, and I thought, oh, I guess that was it. And so I just pushed the button, and I sent it out on my SoundCloud, and I sent it out on social media, and I said, look, uh, I don't know whether this will mean anything to any of you, but I had something I wanted to say.
0: And yeah, so I did that. It's amazing to
1: And then I had to, you know, go that night and premiere it uh, on Broadway in front of, you know, uh, 1,700 people at Kristen's show. And, you know, the thing I wasn't sure of is that Kristen's audience is not necessarily going to be on the side of the angels in a situation like this. And I did not know how that was going to feel. And Kristen herself was very conflicted because her whole show was obviously built long before she knew what was supposed to go on that night. And so it was a lot of, I mean, an enormous pink dress and sparkles and fluffy and frilly and goofy (laughs) and silly and fun, which is all stuff she does beautifully. But it felt so weird on this night when we're all kind of in mourning to be doing these goofy things. So by the time I showed up in the show, which was sort of halfway through the, the second act, I felt like my job was to say the thing that we had all been thinking but couldn't say. And so I just started playing this. I explained about why I had written the song and then I just started playing it. And it was very hard for me to get through. It's a tough song, uh, you know, and it was even tougher back then to get through it. Uh, But at the end of the song, the whole audience just stood up. And what I felt (laughs) them saying was, Thank you for saying this thing on this night. I'm glad we've been able to have a good time, and I'm glad we've been able to enjoy Kristen and, and laugh and ha, 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 and pink and frilly, but thank you for taking one second to just slow us down and say something that we've all been thinking. And I mm. think sometimes that's a writer's job, and maybe my yeah. job as much as anything is to is to say the thing, to, to speak yes. the truth that is in other people's hearts for them.
0: Yeah. Well, b- before we wrap up, I want you to talk to us about your wife and the work she does, because she's also a really impressive and talented person.
1: Indeed, she is. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, Georgia. Uh, my wife's name is Georgia Stitch. For anyone who doesn't know, uh, Georgia and I met. She was the pianist on the uh, national tour of Parade that we did in uh, in the year two thousand.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, I-
1: and so that's uh, that was how we first uh, met each other, and uh, you know, and also how we first got in trouble. So we um, we've been together since then. Uh, and uh, you know, Georgia is uh, she's this enormously gifted uh, composer who has so much her own voice. She speaks in such a, a specific and strong voice, not just musically but also lyrically. There, are, you know, she she comes from a place of real solidity. Uh, You know, she writes strong. It comes from real strength, and she comes from her convictions. And I think that's who she is as a person, and it's who she is as a writer. She writes really with these very deep, strong convictions. Um, And then that affects her other work, which is that she's a a huge activist, uh, not just for uh, women in the theater, but for women in general. And she's on the Council of the Dramatist Guild, but she's also built an entire uh, network of uh, female uh, musical directors, composers, and musicians here in the New York area. That's what I think is so cool. And now across the country. And uh, she's built this huge support system to say, this is who we are, and we have a collective voice. uh, And within that, we all have these individual voices. And it's yeah. been very inspiring to be around that. You know, I uh, I have the privilege of being able to kind of hide under my bed and not deal with the world at large. Uh, and Georgia uh, instead has said, no, I'm going to go out and I'm going to go change that world. And uh, she does that. And so to be married to such a musical force, but also such a, a, a force of nature as a person, and also to... Be a co-parent with somebody who's that strong and convicted. It's an amazing thing. I mean, I'm. But it must. I'm, it must I'm be very cool for, definitely the lesser partner around her,
0: <laughs> But it
1: must be cool for
0: both of you to be married to somebody who totally, 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 totally gets what you do and how hard it is and and how psychologically torturing it is and it's uh,
1: all that stuff. Well, you know, I, the thing is, my first marriage, which too many people know about, was <laughs> to an actress. And you know, actors are a whole different planet than yeah. uh, than musicians. Actors are just a different planet than people. And I I uh, I say that loving them and wanting to be with them all the time, and just, you know, but they are designed to be attractive. They are designed to be you know, uh, the people who get your attention all the time. Right. And so after that marriage, I thought, oh, see, theater people are not for me. But what <laughs> happened when I met George is I met someone who was this incredibly gifted musician who spoke a language that I understood and uh, spoke it with such fluency that the two of us were able to communicate in a way that I'd never been able to communicate with anyone I dealt with. And we tell a story all the time that fairly early on in our relationship, we ended up being in London together, and we were at a concert uh, at the proms uh, at Albert Hall, and they were doing an Ives piece which i think it may have been the the three pieces in new england but the um there's one of the pieces which is sort of a scherzo uh and Ives puts a lot of jokes in the score that you have to know what the joke is in order to find it funny i mean they're they're pretty you know heady musical gags right and there was this amazing moment where we as the two Americans in the entire Royal Albert Hall both heard this thing go by in the eyes and both cracked up and looked at each other because we were the only two people in the building who knew it was funny. And we also happened to be the two people who were in love with each other. And I think that, that ability to speak music like that and to to speak it on the same level and to, to speak it to each other and to our kids and to the world in general, that's, that's a real gift. I, you know, I I don't know that I even knew that was a thing that was possible in a relationship. And, you know, I'm very, very lucky that I have it.
0: Very cool. All right, one last question. Every time I talk to theater people, I ask them this question. I I genuinely believe, you've probably seen me talk about this on Facebook, I genuinely believe that we are in a golden age of musical theater again. And I think it started in the mid-'90s with Songs for New World and Floyd Collins and Rent and Hedwig and Noise Funk and all that stuff. Um, but but I'm curious. Do you think we're in a golden age? I feel like the art form is amazing right now.
1: Um, so I feel like we're in a golden age. I don't know. I I'm, I'm old, so I don't know that I. <laughs> I think when you make your living doing anything, you get in that world on a sort of on a very cellular level. So that what I'm mostly doing is picking apart everything that I see. (laughs) So I find a lot of it enormously inspiring, but at the same time, most of what I'm looking for is how do I do what I do better? And what do I see in this work that makes me think what I can, you know? So I tend not to sit in a place that I think a lot of theater fans can sit in, which is I'm here to enjoy this. I'm here to be taken on a ride. I'm here to to go on this journey. I rarely get that luxury with theater pieces. You know, I think I I'm, I'm halfway between those the band and you.
0: I, I have a yeah, little well, your I mean, problem. you're you're
1: far enough away that you know you're not in the middle of the factory at least. So it's, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, you know that that is in this sense uh, a, 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 a privilege, you know, which I don't have. But I think when I go to see plays, or when I go to see uh, symphonic pieces, or when I go to you know see movies. Because I'm not in those worlds, I can go on those rides without the same sense of uh, getting uh, caught up in it and, oh, why did they do that or, you know, oh, I know that person and I can't believe that's the kind of work they're doing or why would they have hired that person, you know, any of that stuff that (laughs) I sit in the middle of or why would you make that choice, you know. I like I know Lin Manuel for example is you know he's a total movie freak and he always knows what shots he wants and all that and I like movies but I don't care about them that way yeah right so for me I can watch a movie and. It may be a total mess of a movie, but I can just go on the ride with it and love it, whereas I know people who really like live in the movies all the time uh, just sit in movies, and they're like, ugh, that's the best color correction they could get, and how come you would take this stuff that way, and that's out of focus, and, and I, none of that matters to me, but I watch musicals that way.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I feel like there are so many little companies all over the country now doing Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson and Next to Normal and 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 Songs for New World and Next Five Years. And it just feels like it's a different kind of American musical theater now than it used to be. And it's, I don't know, it's pretty cool.
1: It is. I mean, I have a question about whether the nichiness of what is now uh, most contemporary musical theater is an improvement for me over the broader speech of the Broadway stuff that I love, which... Probably culminates with Sunday in the Park with George, but goes back through Gypsy and Fiddler all the way to probably, you know, anything goes. Right. That I feel like my, what I want a Broadway musical to be with a sort of capital B Broadway is, <laughs> uh, you know, is a piece much more like Gypsy than Be More Chill. And I like Be More Chill. Yeah. But the nichiness of it. Wait, I what, do you, what do you mean? Nichiness? To me. nichiness means I think it talks to a much smaller audience um and i think deliberately i right. think that uh even a piece like dear Evan hansen uh talks to a, a small crowd and hamilton i think doesn't hamilton i think is a, is a big uh, it it has its own uh big voice but it is a uh, it is definitely a uh a broadway musical right but i think a lot of the new musicals the smaller ones including some of the ones that i've written uh don't feel like they speak as broadly and so in some ways i it's kind true. of like yeah and I think that may be what you like about them but yeah, for me it sometimes is. you know sometimes for me I'm a little like I just feel left out
0: yeah well and and those shows they're they're not doing well necessarily in the context of Broadway and international audience and all that they are doing well in small theaters with small
1: audiences yeah exactly and that's you know look god bless it that's how I've made my living yeah. But um, <laughs> uh, you know, in terms of whether that makes it a golden age or not, I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, hey, thank you so much for talking to me. This is this has been really cool, and I'm always so fascinated at the way people work, particularly when I know the output of their work really well. So it's been really cool. So thanks a lot.
1: Absolutely. Well, great yeah. to talk to you, Scott. Thanks for calling.
0: Thank you for joining us. This is Scott Miller. Now you too have achieved stage grok. See you next time.